I tried to find for you this morning, but uh, didn't manage it, um, a clip that I could show you on the screen. So you, you just have to come with me in your imaginations. Um, one of, uh, a clip from one of those films, perhaps a David Attenborough documentary, with a parched landscape suddenly bursts into life again as the rains come. Some of you know the kind of thing that I mean? They usually speed it up. So this thing that might take a couple of weeks happens in two and a half minutes on BBC One on a Sunday night. But you see, it's, it's all parched and it was dry and dusty and unable to support life. And then within moments, it's vibrant and lush and colourful and teeming with all kinds of life. And the reason I was looking for that is that's kind of how I understand the picture that Ezekiel is presenting to us here in 47. And he's actually making a very similar point to the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 37. This latest vision that we have, the last of our little exploring um, through Ezekiel for the moment, we're right at the end of the book of Ezekiel now. It's all about how God brings new life. And it's not unconnected from what we explored last week. The sermon's on the website, you can catch it on our YouTube channel if you weren't able to be with us. They're both visions given to the prophet Ezekiel. They both have the same surreal, dreamlike quality, the same sensory details, the same sort of miraculous transformation, and they talk of the same dynamic and life-giving power flowing from the heart of God. That's the connection. Now, as we've been consistently exploring in recent months, um, the geography of Scripture is deeply theological. It's not an accident that things happen where they happen and why they happen where they happen. Um, At some point, we'll have a whole Sunday morning with maps as well, like we're going to do on a Tuesday morning in our Bible study. And I will enjoy that. Stuart will probably enjoy it. And everyone else can hope that it finishes soon. (laughs) But Jerusalem, you see, as a place, doesn't too do too badly for rain. The clouds that come in from the west usually empty themselves on the surrounding mountains. But if you go east of the city, you very quickly find yourselves in the desert. And in fact, if you keep going eastwards, you find yourself dropping down 4,000 feet in just 15 miles until you're far below sea level as you reach the Dead Sea. And the waters from the River Jordan, they flow into the Dead Sea, but they only leave that place by virtue of evaporation. Nothing grows here. Nothing lives. Except in two small oases. We were given their names in the reading. En Gedi and En Eglain. These two little areas where something might survive and grow. But the rest of it, nothing at all. And Ezekiel's vision is about the transformation of a desert landscape. And it isn't about a particular set of instructions. If you're looking for advice on how to turn your sandy garden into a lush green one, this is not the text for you. Nor is this about a particular event in history. Sometimes the prophetic visions and the pictures are about a particular moment in history. This isn't that, I don't think. But it's a great symbolic picture of God's purpose of God's heart, of God's expectations. And the implication of this picture is that the temple, as the special location of God's presence at this time, is in fact the source of life for the whole country, and specifically the places that seemed dead and unable to support 
life. As the people of Judah, who Ezekiel is speaking to, return from their exile in Babylon, the vision is not just about rebuilding the temple as a particular place, but the vision is that it will once again be a source of life for all the people. Talk of trees and fruit and flowing water evokes images of the creation story and suggests that God is renewing the land as they return in such a way as to fulfill God's original purpose. And so as the vision begins, Ezekiel is taken to the entrance of the temple building. And it's pointed out to him that there is a trickle of water emerging from the south side of the entrance. Now if someone comes to me and says, Dave, there's a a trickle of water appearing at the south side of the sanctuary, I wouldn't be going, oh good, The, the Lord is here. But before Ezekiel has time to wonder why he hasn't noticed this before, is it new? Have I just been blind to it up until this point? He's then taken in his vision to the outer gate of the temple and where the the trickle is now flowing out further and it goes beyond the temple boundaries. And so looking around him, wondering what's going on, Ezekiel then follows his guide who is now striding purposefully eastward into the desert towards the parched land, the Dead Sea, remember the theological geography, and either alongside his guide or following on, Ezekiel's trying to follow and see what's happening. Is the guide walking next to this trickle, this stream that's becoming bigger and bigger? Perhaps even the guide is walking right in the middle of this body of water. Ezekiel's led further and further into the river, and it gets deeper and deeper. This happens in stages, we're told, a thousand cubits at a time. Now, a thousand cubits is roughly 1,500 feet or 457 metres, for those of you who are, don't live your life in cubits. And first, Ezekiel finds himself ankle deep in the water. Then it's up to his knees. Then it's up to his waist as he goes further. And beyond then, he finds himself out of his depth At verse 5, we're told, in a river that no one could cross. So he's going roughly two kilometres, four stages, 500 metres-ish at a time. And then he gets to that stage, it's too deep for anybody to cross. And then in the vision, they return to the banks of the river, where Ezekiel now finds that there are a great many trees, which he's told will miraculously bear fruit every month and their leaves will bring healing for the nations. It's quite some vision for Ezekiel to be given. I wonder what you make of it this morning. I wonder what God might have to say to us through it today. I think there's all sorts of things, actually, that are worth reflecting on as we look at it this morning. But before we do that, I want to note a couple of things from the context of this passage that I think will help us. The first is that this amazing vision of a life-giving healing river comes directly before, in the book of Ezekiel, directly before the organising and the boundaries and the division of the land. So what happens after this? All the people are going to be coming back from exile. God's going to sort everything out. The land's going to be flowing and life-giving. And then they work out, well, whose bit's whose? Right? That's what comes next in the story of Ezekiel. But we're not doing Ezekiel 48 this morning. 
But notice then that before the people could settle again and rebuild, the land itself has to be renewed and cleansed and healed. There is definitely something here about the importance of tending and caring for the land. The people will return to plough and irrigate and to plant and to harvest. And there's a strong link here between God's people and the land that they have been given. There's an important ecological element. Another impetus for us as God's people to take our care for creation seriously. It's part of how God speaks and manifests in our world. The second thing is that the most important thing we can possibly take away and know about this river of life is its source. It comes from the presence of God. That's the symbolism of it beginning in the middle of the temple. Now, that's not um, how things are today. Jesus has changed it, so we'll come on to that in a minute. But at this point in history, God's presence was most acutely felt and noticed and experienced in the centre of the temple. So when they say that that's where it begins, what they're trying to help us understand is that this river of life comes from the presence of God. God is the source. And we see that reflected all through all sorts of places in the Bible. In 1 Chronicles 29, where we read, Everything comes from you. We've given you only what has come from your hand. Or in James 1, where we read, Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. God is the one who brings life, and God is so incredibly faithful. And then the third thing is that Ezekiel's river of life is part of a rich vein of imagery that runs throughout the Bible. It's a thread that's worth following, and it runs from the Garden of Eden at the start all the way through to the book of Revelation at the end where the river of life forms part of the city of God, the new creation. Have you ever noticed that trajectory? Scripture begins in a garden and ends in the city. We'll talk about that more one day. But the idea of the river of life and water and springs of life coming up in all sorts of places which seem dry and parched and unable to sustain life is something that comes up over and over and over and over. And that's all very nice, but what do we do with that information? What might we do with all that now, given that our lives are very different from the people of Judah living in exile in Babylon thousands of years ago, and given that the temple is no longer the place where we need to go to experience the presence of God? When this vision has the water of the river of life springing up in the temple and heading out to the parched land beyond, I think it tells us something about our role as God's people today. We don't have a temple. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus and the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, we can and do meet God anywhere and everywhere. There's no sacrificial system anymore for us to need to go to the temple. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. There's no boundaries on being in God's presence. We can have access to God all the time. But I think there is something in this about the direction of travel of the water. The source is God, and it goes out through the temple into the world. And we have God within us as disciples of Jesus, as God's people, as the church, as people who have the Holy Spirit working in our lives. And the challenge for us, then, is to be part of that flowing current of goodness and love and truth and grace out into the world. 
Because actually right from the beginning, this was always the role of God's people. In Genesis 12, we read, The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And all that goes on and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. God blesses the people so that the people will in turn bless the world. We're blessed so that we may in turn be a blessing. As each of us, each day, in the places where God has put us, and us together in our community, and it's the church with a big C across the world. And in our best moments as the church, this is exactly what we do. Christians have seen to it that there is clean water to drink, and health care for the poor, and homes for orphans, and food for the hungry, and safety from oppressors. And we see thousands upon thousands of people being set free with the truths of the gospel, and finding forgiveness for their sins, and liberation for their souls every day across the world. We might not see it here in Shubriness, Lord, I'm ready. But it's happening around the world every day. And it's good. But we also have to acknowledge that that's not always the case. The church is not always at its best. No one ever is, I guess. Sometimes the voice with which the church, with a big C, speaks into the world is one of death and not of life. Is one of despair instead of hope. Is one of closed shops rather than open tables. And we need to help each other maintain a generosity of spirit which is only possible because of our faith and trust with God. God is with us and we need not be afraid. Because we still believe that God has good things to do and share with the world, do we not? We believe seeing more of the kingdom of God and more people following Jesus will help bring hope and joy and life in all its fullness. Bringing release for the captives and recovery of sight for the blind and freedom for the oppressed. And so where do we go next? What is God calling you to? See, I'm doing a new thing, God says in Isaiah 43. Now it springs up, do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. Let justice roll on like a river, God says in Amos 5, and righteousness like a never-failing stream. I love the message translation of that verse from Amos, which says, and I've included the verses that come before it as well, because I think it's so powerful. God says, I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religious projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes and your public relations and image making. I had all I can take of your noisy ego music, when was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice, and I want oceans of it. I want fairness, and I want rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. You just get these senses. as you read these passages about God making streams in the wasteland and rivers of righteousness and oceans of justice, that when God starts to move, you're not going to be able to stop it. When the dam breaks, it breaks. And rather than attempting to turn back the tide, I do sometimes think that's a good image for how church can be, shouting angrily for the tide to go back the other way. 
never worked for anybody in all of human history, but we'll give it a go. We need to see it instead when God moves like that, rather than something to want to turn back, instead as an invitation to jump in and be part of. That is a moment where we're being invited to be part of something, not to stand against it. And part of that outpouring of life throughout history, another thread that runs throughout Scripture, is the way in which the goodness of God and the invitation to find new life goes out beyond whatever boundaries we put on it. On Tuesday evening, a number of us met here um, for our service to mark the week of prayer for Christian unity, which we're still in. We still have to be good and unified and focused on that until the 25th. The 26th, they're on their own. But up until the 25th, we're praying for our sisters and brothers in other denominations around the world. Um, I'm being flippant, by the way, just in case anyone's going (laughs) to... Please don't send me an email about that. And if you're watching online and you're a Methodist, we love you. It's fine. Right. Um... And our our friend Louise Williams from St Andrews and St Peter's spoke and spoke really powerfully to us about how God um, doesn't put those kind of boundaries on God's work in the world. And we have to be honest about what our own prejudices and boundaries are and bring that before God. And we get a glimpse of that in the story that we heard from John 4 this morning with the woman at the well. She's a Samaritan. All this good news, this new life in the desert, it's not for people like her. Everybody knows how it works, don't they? Everyone, that is, except Jesus, who talks to her instead about living water. Everyone who drinks from this water, from this well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And we know about God's people in the Old Testament, including after the ministry of Ezekiel, it doesn't all of a sudden become good forever after all this, these visions and messages. And it continued the cycle of they're clean and they're set right with God and they're thriving and they're hopeful. And then they become a bit complacent, I guess. They drift into worshipping um, others and other things. They neglect their worship and their commitment to the justice of God's kingdom. And then things start to go wrong and Lives are ruined and consequences are significant. And by significant, I mean bad. And then God rescues them and sets them right again. And so the cycle begins over and over. And I guess, is that not the cycle some of us do every day? It certainly is for me. Something big was needed. Something significant was needed to ensure that this river flowed out across the world in the way that God intended it to do. And so into this picture into the middle of this stream comes Jesus Christ. For it's in his life and death and resurrection that the cycle is broken, that our sin is dealt with, that death is defeated, that hope springs eternal. Jesus is the living water. Jesus is the spring that bubbles up in us and in the world. But unlike the trickle of water that I'll get a phone call about on the south side of the sanctuary... Jesus won't force his way into your life. It's your choice whether you invite him in or not. And for those of us who have opened our hearts to him already, the daily choice remains. Will I do my best to follow Jesus with my heart and my soul and my mind and my strength today? Or not? And if you don't remember anything else this morning, here's the thing. Here's the question 
that I think is posed to us by the vision of Ezekiel in chapter 47. Do you want to go deeper into the river? Are you ready for more? That's the question I think this poses to us. If you're standing on the bank, maybe you're dipping a toe in if you're here with us this morning, but you've never gone beyond that. What might it look for you now to move to a place where it's up to your ankles? Is getting baptised the next step for you, I wonder? Or if you consider yourself in your ankles, are you ready to go up to your knees? And if you're in at your knees, are you ready to go up to your waist? And if the water is at your waist, are you ready to go all in? Is it time for you to explore new responsibilities, further study, to explore a call to ministry or a conversation about faith with your neighbour? Is it about a commitment to spending more time in prayer, getting that new idea off the ground or supporting others in new ways? I don't know what it might look like for you, but I know that God isn't finished with us yet. A long time ago now, uh, 1997, which sounds like it was five minutes ago, but that's 26 years, um, a Christian band released a single that I've been singing to myself this week whilst I've been thinking about Ezekiel 47. It was called Deeper, right? It was a very Route 1 connection, okay? The band were called Delirious, some of you might remember. Anyone else bought the single? I did. Yeah, thanks, Tim was there. Tim bought it, excellent. We went to the concert as well, I love it, I love it. Fantastic. It got into the top 20, yes, it did. And uh, I think, you know, we all faithfully went out, bought a copy, and Delirious getting into the top 10 was going to change the world didn't make the top 10, so we press on and we pray for more change. Anyway, the lyrics begin um, with the line, I want to go deeper, and that upsets me for a start. I want to go deeper. I'd correct my children, but the lyric is wanna, okay? It doesn't work with the music otherwise. I want to go deeper, but I don't know how to swim. And I wonder if that might just capture how some of us feel this morning. We want to go further into the river, deeper into the presence and heart and life-giving presence of God. But we're not sure what that means. Or we're not sure what it needs to look like, or whether we're going to be able to swim. Perhaps you've never been this way before, and you're nervous. Or perhaps you've been this way before, and you've been burnt by Christians, and so you're still nervous. Friends, if that's you... Please hear me when I tell you that God knows and God understands. God doesn't want something from you today. God wants something for you. Jesus wants to bring you more life and more hope and more joy and more peace. And you can trust him. Jesus is more trustworthy than anyone you'll have ever met. So dive in with me today. There is new life ready and waiting, even for you. May you swim in the river of life all the way to the top of your head. Amen.